This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants of Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an editor of one of the leading peer-reviewed journals on cost-effectiveness analysis. Lastly, I'm a proud graduate of the 19, uh, 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. So if you're interested in joining in the conversation today, Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I recently had the opportunity to hear Dr. Robert Vonderheide, director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, as part of the January 2018 J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco at an off-site separate symposium put on by Penn Innovation. At the symposium, CAR T-cell therapy for cancers was discussed, but more importantly, Dr. Vonderheide's eyes lit up when we started talking about cancer vaccines, which Penn Medicine is at the forefront of. Today, we're going, to, we're going to be discussing the promise of cancer vaccines and progress made to date. We're also going to discuss T-cell therapy, its successes, and some of, the, uh, some of its limitations. We will then discuss how some of these limitations are being addressed and how cancer vaccines may fit into the oncologist's toolbox in preventing and treating cancer, most especially with solid tumors. Solid tumors present a more complex problem due to their microenvironment and their ability to evade the human immune system or its response. We will discuss this at length today. So my guests today, Dr. Robert Vonderheide, MD, Doctor of Philosophy, Director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and the John H. Glick, M.D., Abramson Cancer Center's professor at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. Dr. Vonderheide also serves as a member of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn and the Basser Research Center for BRCA, devoted to the study of BRCA-related cancers. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. My next guest is... Gerald Lynette, MD, PhD, Director of the Hematology, Oncology, and Medical Director, I'm sorry, Professor of Hematology and Oncology and Medical Director of the Sean Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn's Abramson Cancer Center. Dr. Lynette's primary interest is the development of cellular immunotherapies for, for melanoma and other solid tumors. His laboratory research is focused on human tumor neoantigen discovery, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Welcome, Jerry. Good afternoon, Jeff. And my last guest is John Wery, Ph.D., who is the Richard and Barbara Schifrin President's Distinguished Professor of Microbiology and the Director of the Institute of Immunology at Penn. The Institute was established in 2009 to provide an administrative and programmatic structure, and programmatic structure to unify the basic translational and clinical immunology communities across the university. He's also the co-director of the Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn, where his research focuses on T-cell memory, host-pathogen interactions, and immunity to persisting infections in model systems and in humans. Welcome, John. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so let, let's, let's get into this. I mean, we got a lot of stuff to cover today. And the first question I have for you guys is a little bit about how each of these, how, how you interact with each other and, and how the, the programs I just talked about actually work with each other? How, how, what's, the, what's kind of the glue here that's putting you guys together and, and making things work in a cohesive way? Bob? Well, I think that we all realize we must work together to get done what we want to get done, which is to help patients find new therapies and, and improve, uh, improve patients' lives. And so we have realized, particularly here at Penn, that we need to bring together expertise from all disciplines. So what we have here today is the Cancer Center, the Institute for Immunology, the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, all coming together. In practice, we, we talk all the time. Our labs interact all the time. We are bringing ideas forward to the clinic, sharing insights from the clinic back. 
Um, this is completely different than one might imagine how research was done 20, 30, 40 years ago in a quiet room with the dark-lit, pipetting scientist. It, nowadays, you come through and you see us, you see us in action. It's, it's, um, it's like the Google uh, uh, foyer. Uh -huh. where, uh, ideas are bouncing uh, back and forth. It's incredibly dynamic, and, and we're all in it together. We're rowing the same boat trying to help patients. So w would you say, based on you know, your, your um, perspective of 20 years ago, it sounds like the, the interactions are helping, obviously, progress a lot of what's going on in this field in, in a very meaningful and rapid fashion. Um, John? Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly right. But I think that the challenge is bigger than any individual lab or any individual person or any individual scientist at Penn. And, and there's a real recognition that when we build on each other, we can do much more than we can do individually. And so there's been a culture that's developed here over perhaps the last 15 or 20 years of uh, real selflessness in the goal of using science to help treat patients. Yeah. And then also learning from, from those experiences as we're treating patients to improve the scientific uh, enterprise going forward. So it's really been a dynamic interaction across the spectrum of the clinical and scientific enterprise at Penn. Yeah, so I, I want to talk a little bit about this, and then we'll move on to some of the more, the more, more of the science. But I, I find it really interesting that, I mean, you, you look at kind of academic medical centers, and there's all of these little fiefdoms along the way that people don't necessarily talk to each other, and you've broken down those walls. W would you say that's correct? Jerry? Oh, definitely. I yeah. think, you know, one of the missions of our group in the Parker Center specifically is to really accelerate research and make mm -hmm. it go faster through these collaborations that Bob and John talked about. So I think the other thing that I wanted to point out is just the inherent complexity of cancers based upon the genomic information that's gathered from patients today. Yeah. Combined with the complexity of the human immune system, I think this is really one of our biggest challenges. Okay. Um, so, but, but what's, um, uh, uh, you may not have the answer for this, but what's the secret sauce for you guys to want to work with each other? What, what, what is, what's the glue here? Is it one person? Is it, is it an idea? Is it a goal? Is it, what, 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 what do you think that is? I mean, you may have different answers for that, and that's fine. Well, I think the, the glue is that we all realize we're, we're on the cusp of something incredibly big. Yeah. I mean, the immune revolution for cancer therapy is upon us. And if we don't work together, this is a lost opportunity. So we all have partnered with the vision that new understandings of genetics, new understandings of the tumor microenvironment, immunology, mathematics, et cetera, et cetera, um, will deliver and is beginning to deliver, and we've only seen just the beginning. Got it. Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the excitement is John. palpable uh -huh. um, every day, and, and you realize that you know, um, each thing that you discover or each new innovation you introduce into the clinic can be used by a host of other people on campus mm -hmm. to improve the way they're addressing their particular challenge or problem or clinical need. And there's uh, an unbelievable culture of being able to share and capitalize on that around campus. Right. So I think Bob's exactly right. We are right at the inflection point of something really, really great. And if we rest we're going to miss the opportunity. So, so that sounds like what's driving you is this is this goal, uh, knowing that I mean, if you can crack the issue of uh, the the cancer genome and figure out you know therapies for that, immunotherapies for that, I mean, this is really driving you guys in a very meaningful way. Uh, Jerry, yes. So, Jeff, I, I oh, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. think one of the things that we're seeing in the clinic now is, in fact. Since the last five years, patients are living longer. Uh -huh. I mean, this is irrefutable in the sense that we see this now in our longitudinal clinics in the cancer center. Patients, their quality of life has improved dramatically because of these new therapies. Right. And I think, as John and Bob indicated, really this is the beginning. Yeah, okay. So uh, my next question is, um, it sounds like there's a conscious effort, obviously, from um, from Penn Medicine to focus on immunotherapy as opposed to any other kinds of cancer therapies. Is that right, or, or is that, um, or, or do you have a different well, perspective on that? Bob? I would look at it this way. You know, our, as we said, our goal is to help patients in any in any possible way. Mm -hmm. That's our that's our mission, and yep. no doubt we are right now seeing the incredible power of manipulating and activating the immune system to attack cancer, and we want to maximize that. So yes, we're putting a lot of effort into 
finding out every possible way the immune system can work. What we're learning is that the immune system and therapies targeted to activate the immune system will probably work best in combination with other therapies. Got it. And by borrowing insights from other disciplines. And this is always how progress has happened. Let me take you back to the first cancer center director. I'm humbled to follow in his footsteps, Peter Knoll, who won the Lasker Prize, a faculty member here at Penn, who discovered the Philadelphia chromosome. We like chromosomes named after our town. That's, that, a, that's a great book, by the way. Yes, it and, is. <laughs> and as we know, that, it was, that was the basis for understanding the genetic, the genetic basis of cancer. And, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, quite a bit of what we've done over the last few decades has been to exploit that knowledge and to find therapies that go after the genetics of the tumor. Mm-hmm. So that was at heart. But did we stop there? Did we say, oh, we're only going to study the genetics of the cancer? No, we kept looking for the next big thing. And one of those things is immunology that has come upon us, not in the last year, Jeff. This is what we're talking about is a is a 20-year overnight sensation. Hmm. And, and it's coming to fruition for our patients, as Jerry described. Our eyes are wide open for the next big thing. What will it be? Will it be metabolism? Will it be the intersection of genetics and immunology? Eyes wide open. We're investing in everything. Um, it is. Um, we're we're we will follow the leads and we will follow the science to help our patients the best. Okay, so let's get into the science a little bit more okay. and some of the things that have come out of Penn. And one of them is CAR T cell therapy. Um, Bob, you want to talk a little bit about what that is and what what's happened and and, and where it is right now and and it's actually become a business. So, so CAR T cell therapy, CAR, C A R, chimeric antigen receptor T cells. These are white blood cells that we obtain from our patients. We take them back to a pharmaceutical grade laboratory. We have one here at Penn. There's now many uh, across the country, and we engineer those white blood cells, a particular type, the T cell, um, to have a receptor that targets, allows those T cells to target the cancer and kill it. It's, it's an engineered, genetically engineered white blood cell transfusion, which has shown incredible power in certain types of cancer, such as pediatric leukemias, mm-hmm. um, some forms of adult leukemias, and now lymphoma. Two of those drugs, including two of those therapies, including one developed here at the Abramson Cancer Center, is now FDA-approved. So this means that they can be prescribed. No longer clinical trials. They are prescribable. Uh, A second formulation has been FDA approved. We expect additional indications coming forward. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, the real frontier is can we make these therapies work for solid tumors like breast cancer, pancreas cancer, brain cancer. And we're working hard at work on all those efforts. Mm -hmm. It represents a completely different type of therapy, right? We We are... generating cells that are energized now, the patient's own cells, which we always knew potentially had this power, but they needed this help. They go back in the body, and they act as a biosynthetic type of cell. They grow. They expand. They live. They live a long time. Mm -hmm. They're our own cells, and now they're killing cancer. Um, Completely unprecedented. Um, Closest thing before this was bone marrow transplantation, which in its own right revolutionized things. And we're working hard to advance this notion of cell therapy uh, even further. Right. So, Jerry, let's talk a little bit about where CAR T cells uh, are not working so well and what what some of the challenges are with those types of cancers. I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of solid tumors, specifically diseases like lung cancer, Mm -hmm. colon cancer, ovarian cancer, melanoma, where the what we call the tumor microenvironment, the tissues and the cells surrounding the actual tumor itself are much more complex and complicated uh-huh. and really pose the primary barrier to the effectiveness of the CAR T cells working and, you know, providing durable remissions to patients. So I think this is really where a lot of our learning is going to take place in the next five years in terms of trying to study each patient's specific tumor microenvironment, dissect this out, and then target these problem areas, if you will, with specific drugs. Yeah. So, John, what happens in this microenvironment when your CAR T-cell goes into a solid tumor? Does it get blocked? I mean, what, 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 what kind of things are you guys looking at to unblock that, um, uh, that, that interaction? Yeah, I think this is one of the, the big challenges, and it's something we need to address with both CAR T-cell therapy and some of the other 
checkpoint therapies that, that are available now. So, so tell me what a checkpoint therapy is. So a checkpoint yeah. therapy targets specific molecules on the T cells mm-hmm. that prevent them from functioning properly. Okay. Now, this is something that's normally good for our bodies. So T cells are there to protect us from viruses and other germs. Uh, you get infected, and they respond, and they respond like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. But they also make you feel pretty sick. Yeah. You know, if you get the flu and you feel really, really bad, that's often partly because of your T cells. So they have a hardwired way of shutting themselves off. Okay. And that's to protect you from damaging your tissues. Mm-hmm. The problem is the T cells can't tell the difference between a tumor and your normal tissues a lot of the times. They can partially, and they start responding, but then this, this hardwired shutoff mechanism comes in, and that's a checkpoint. Okay. And so that's what happens to the CAR T cells going into solid tumors. That's what happens if you naturally have T cells that can recognize the tumor. And one of these checkpoints is called PD-1, has really revolutionized the way we think about the immune system being involved in cancer. And it has because when we take away this checkpoint... PD-1 stands for what? It stands for program death one. Okay. And it's probably a little bit of a misnomer. <laughs> and okay. it was identified <laughs> on a cell that was dying. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, okay. And that's the reason for the name. Yeah, but yeah. we now know that that molecule is there. Uh, to at least partly limit the function of T cells. Got it. And that's probably protecting you from either autoimmunity or damaging tissues. So what are you guys doing with these uh, PD-1 cells? I mean, it, it, part of the therapy with, uh, with T cells, what, what else is added to that, to that mix in order to get the T cell where it needs to go? Yeah, I think, I think we can do a lot of things. So in CAR T cells, we can engineer the T cells to recognize the tumor and then remove PD-1. Right. In melanoma... We can vaccinate and block this PD-1 checkpoint in hopes of initiating the T-cell response and then removing this checkpoint to try Uh to sustain the response longer. Uh So there are a lot of ways that we can combine removing that checkpoint or blocking that checkpoint with immunotherapy or even other standard therapies. So back to Bob's point, chemotherapy and surgery and radiation, the traditional staples of cancer therapy, now can be viewed in a new light by combining them with immunotherapy, taking away these breaks on the immune system. So uh-huh. we have the immune system involved when we add something else to the mix. So uh, just as, so you, you've, you've added all of these, um, it sounds like there's you know, multiple therapies, obviously, that to use with patients who have, um, uh, who have cancer, solid tumor cancers. How do you know which ones to use on a particular patient? I mean, is it, it, so it's got to be some of the workup on that patient, and it's got to be some of the whether you know what's working or not, and there's got to be some diagnostics around that. Well, how, is, how is that working here at, at Penn? Um, and I'm going to ask Bob and Jerry to kind of weigh in on that. So, Jerry. So yeah. we obviously will do biopsies and send the tissue to the pathologist, uh-huh. but we expand that in the sense that we like to do genetic or genomic analysis and study the tumors uh, in depth and characterize these tumors to find the weak spots. How are you doing that? Mutations. Well, we use you know, um, next-generation sequencing methods to analyze these tumors derived from these patients and find these weak spots or these mutations, these genetic alterations that promote the growth of the cancer cells. So how, how many of the mutations, I mean, how many mutations can you attack? Or, or is it innumerable? Or I mean, what, what's, what's the, is, is there a limit to that? Help me understand. What right the, now there's it, a limit. We're good. limited by the medications that we have okay. to give to any particular patient, right? but it's all predicated upon finding the precise mutation in that patient's tumor. So there are many examples of this, and I can let Bob... Are, are there, so are there easier thing. cancers that have less mutations that you can kind of go after first? Is that what you guys are looking at? I mean, I, I see a lot of heads nodding around the, well, around the table here. I would say uh, the perspective is, you know, going back 15 years ago, we understood how to take a patient's tumor, sequence it. Here are some mutations, and there are drugs that will target those mutations. Those abnormalities in a patient and a tumor's DNA were mutations that caused the cancer. Mm-hmm. They, people call them drivers. And there are occasionally drugs that can attack those, and that's, that's what's called targeted therapy, precision oncology. And you, you hear about this a lot, um, TV ads and, you know, every major medical center will approach can, uh, treating cancer patients that way. Like, what, he, like Keytruda, something like that. No, in, Keytruda is an immune therapy. I, I, you might be thinking of um, uh, a molecule, uh, a drug that will go after a mutation in a molecule called BRAF right. in melanoma. Mm-hmm. 
or EGFR in lung cancer. What, okay. what we now see is a transition, and it's back to your question, that immune therapies have the ability to tar- um, go after a lot more vulnerabilities gen- than just those cancer-driving mutations. So, for example, PD-L1, the ligand, the receptor for PD-1 is expressed by a lot of tumors. So it matters, for example, in lung cancer, whether the tumor expresses that molecule or not. Yep. And so what we're seeing is a change in precision oncology from just sequencing the tumor looking for driver mutations to understanding the whole micro environment, the whole ecosystem. And in doing so, we've learned, for example, that there, speaking of mutations, there are lots of mutations that are not drivers, they're passengers. Mm -hmm. And Jerry can talk more about this, but Jerry, among others, has discovered that for whatever reason, the immune system can actually attack those types of mutations. And there's a way forward on vaccinating patients going after those mutations. Opens the door massively from just a few mutations per tumor to literally sometimes hundreds or more mutations per tumor. An incredible new vulnerability that we can treat cancer so, with. So t- tell me the kind of work that's being done on that. I mean, with, with, uh, and is it in the clinic right now? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. in the clinic, Jeff. So <clears throat> we have known probably for the last five years or so appreciated in humans that cancer patients are able to recognize their tumors. Mm-hmm. However, the immune response is relatively weak. But at a molecular level, what these T cells from these patients are seeing are these mutations, these single point mutations, if you will, in one of the amino acids of the small piece or fragment of the protein that's expressed on the cancer cells. Right. And these T cells have the ability to discriminate the healthy cells from the cancer cells on the basis of a single amino acid difference. So this is the work that we're all trying to, at this point, uh, really study in further depth in larger numbers of patients to be able to identify the precise mutations that each patient is recognizing in a way to enhance or boost their immune system through these various drugs that we've discussed so far. Got it. So I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Today we're talking about cancer vaccines. We're kind of talking about the kind of the biology just uh, presently, but we will be talking about some of the vaccines. Um, my guests today are Dr. Robert Vonderheide, who's the director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, Jerry Lynette, a medical director of the Sean Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn, Penn's Abramson Cancer Center, and John Wary, who's the director of the Institute of Immunology at Penn. If you have a, a comment or a question, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So uh, one of the things I, I do want to talk about is some of the... Um, uh, the adverse effects of, say, even CAR T-cells. W- what's happening with some of the patients and the reactions that they have, and, and how are you handling those kind of adverse reactions? I understand that there's a thing called a cytokine storm, uh, and, 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 and is that being uh, mitigated uh, with some of the therapies you're working on now, Bob? Right. Yeah. So with every new therapy, we learn about new side effects, and, yep. and we, our clinical team, were, uh, clinical team was very... Um, uh, uh, scrutinizing all the side effects that patients were having. And an observation was that in the face of this massive immune response, as mm-hmm. John referred to, right. that's very powerful and it can make patients feel bad. And, and it's on the basis of these molecules, these cytokines that are released, and we call that cytokine release syndrome. It can be mitigated and it has been mitigated. In fact, on the very day that the first CAR T-cell therapy was approved by the FDA, the FDA also approved an antidote of sort, an existing drug that Abramson Cancer Center investigators figured out simultaneously can mitigate the effects of cytokine release syndrome in most patients. Hmm. And, and so that was a double approval. The second approval we didn't hear too much about, but it was equally important in keeping our patients um, safe. So, so uh, how, how does that work? So if a patient has a, a really bad reaction, I mean, they'll give them this particular therapy and it'll shut down the, cyst, the, the, the T cells from kind of attacking. Well, what was important about it is it doesn't shut down the T cells. Yeah. It neutralizes one of these molecules, one of these cytokines, so right. that it can't have a side effect on the cardiovascular system or the lungs and other things okay. like that. So yep. that, it was pretty clever, right? The immune system keeps going, killing cancer, but we were able to protect the other organs in the body. Now, is it perfect? No. And do patients, 
do we have to take super uh, you know super care of them as they get these therapies? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And as we different therapies come online and we have different variations, we're watching out for different side effects. But what we're seeing here is altogether. I just want to make it clear: altogether different than side effects that we experienced and we understand so well from radiation or chemotherapy. Sure. This is yeah. not hair loss, nausea, vomiting, low bone marrow. This is um, side effects that come with an activated immune system. Yep. And and because we have a molecular understanding of that, we can apply molecular antidotes to that, and that's what's happening. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the um, uh, some of the supercomputing that's going on here, and how how that works in in your um, the workup on the patient. I mean, you've got this tumor, you've kind of figured out what's going on with the tumor, and then how does how does the computing work, uh, Jerry, with this? Well, Jeff, there are efforts underway, large-scale efforts in terms of using artificial intelligence, if you will, to actually decipher and find these genetic alterations yep. within each patient's cancer. Um, so the hope in the future is is that in a few years from now, any patient who walks into a large academic medical center will have a tissue biopsy, and within a week or so, we'll be able to you know, fully analyze, if you will, in delineate the genetic alterations of the set of mutations that are responsible for causing this patient's uh, malignancy. Yeah. Um, So I want to follow up on one of the points that Bob made in terms of these so-called passenger mutations. Mm -hmm. I think that for many years we thought that these passenger mutations were not very useful in the sense that they kind of just were along for the ride and didn't really contribute to the cancer, and in many instances this is true. But I think now with a greater understanding of how our T cells recognize these cancer cells, we can make use of these passenger mutations to create new therapies and target these T cells to these individual mutations that are specific to that individual So patient. a passenger mutation, let me, let me sure I understand this, passenger mutation doesn't do anything immediately to the patient, but may later on down the road, I mean, uh, create a, a situation where the, the, the cancer recurs? or Is that kind of the, the thinking? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. I think they're really kind of just <clears throat> there, and they're like little flags that mm-hmm. have the uh, potential to be recognized by the patient's immune system, but they don't really contribute directly to the growth of the cancer cells. Okay. And, yeah. and they exist uh-huh. because <clears throat> cancers, unlike normal cells, their their genome, their DNA is highly unstable. Yeah. And so some of the mutations that happen first actually cause the cancer. But then now the, the cancer cell's a mess. The DNA is a mess, and they, it starts to accumulate these other mutations that don't make the cancer grow faster or slower, but they become, as Jerry said, flags. And it turns out the immune system is particularly honed into those. Got it. And it's it's a uh, it's a design flaw mm-hmm. of cancers that mm. they, you know, they are genomically unstable to become a cancer, but it it's actually a vulnerability. And it's taken us this long to recognize it because, as Jerry said, we put the passenger mutations over there yeah. for the first twenty years. And now we've come back to understand that that you can fashion immune therapy against those and and take advantage of the very thing that causes cancer to be cancer. Got it. Okay. So we need to take a break. We'll be back in a couple minutes. I'm Jeff Voigt. You're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. My guests today are Dr. Robert Vonderheide, John Wery, and Jerry Lynette, and we are talking about cancer um, uh, uh, cancer vaccines. We'll be back in a couple minutes. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Jeff Voigt. So welcome back. This is Jeff Voigt, and you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. If you have a question about what we're talking about today, which is cancer vaccines, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. My guests today are three of the nation's experts on cancer vaccines and, and, and T-cells uh, and, and how they work in the body uh, for uh, creating an immune response. My guests, Robert, Robert Vonderheide, who is the director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, Jerry Lynette, medical director of the Sean Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn's Abramson Cancer Center, and John Wery, director of the Institute of Immunology at Penn. So we've been talking about these uh, T-cells and and uh, and th- their ability to um, be programmed, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but we will, programmed to uh, essentially become a vaccine. 
Um, and so, John, I want to ask you a little bit about the T cells and, and uh, some of the challenges you're having with the T cells. I, I've under, I understand that some of them become, let's call it, exhausted. Yeah, and and I want to understand what that means and why why that happens. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So um, we and others that have been studying this process for many years have called the t- kinds of T cells you find in tumors exhausted. And so what we mean by that operationally is we think the T cells should be performing certain functions and they fail to do so. Mm-hmm. But they're there. And they seem to achieve some sort of stalemate hmm. that without them, the tumor or in some cases the chronic infection would be far worse. But yet with them there, you're not curing the disease. So we think that this is something that evolved to deal with certain kinds of infections where the damage that could occur if you let the T cells go wild would be worse than living with the infection. But what's happened is tumors have exploited this Uh as a way to continue to persist Uh and evade the immune system. So this process is called T cell exhaustion. Uh, We now understand a good bit of the molecular circuit board that underlies this problem. And Mm -hmm. that's been really key because many of our immunotherapies actually target exactly this kind of cell. Right. And the goal is to take that kind of cell and turn it into the kind of cell that you would want to generate after, say, a childhood vaccine. Mm -hmm. In that case, we generate something called a memory T cell. Those memory T cells can last decades, and they protect you from things like measles or chicken pox or other kinds of infections. But in cancer, we don't get them. Mm -hmm. So now that we understand a little bit more of the molecular wiring of exhausted T cells, the goal is to now to poke the right buttons and turn those exhausted T cells into something like a memory T cell. Got it. If we do that right Mm -hmm. and we cure the tumor, we should have memory and that tumor shouldn't come back. And there's now emerging evidence in the field that in patients who do achieve a complete remission of their tumor, that you can find memory T cells lasting years after the tumors have gone away. And that may protect them from tumor recurrence or, or cancer recurrence long-term. Yeah, so Jerry, let's let's go right into the clinic here with some of these, and, and tell me a little bit of the experiences you're having with, um, and um, focus in on a couple of cancers, but, but tell me some of the experiences you're having with the patients as it relates to um, can, uh, cancer vaccines themselves. Please. So Jeff, there's two type, broadly speaking, there's two types of vaccines. There's the preventative cancer vaccines, and the best examples is the HPV or the human papillomavirus vaccine, mm-hmm. as well as the hepatitis B virus vaccine is also considered a preventative vaccine. And the results are remarkable. So the results from the registry studies from Taiwan and Thailand really show a marked reduction in the incidence of hepatocellular cancer, or liver cancer from these <clears throat> young, from these young adults that are at risk. Um, and the human papillomavirus data, again, is really remarkable, and I think this has a major, been a major accomplishment of the National Cancer Institute over the last 10 to 15 years right. in terms of vaccinating our young people. Mm-hmm. In terms of therapeutic vaccines, I think we have had less success there, quite honestly. There is one FDA-approved therapeutic vaccine. It's really a dendritic cell-based vaccine. It's called Ciplucil T or Provenge mm-hmm. for prostate cancer right. that was approved back in 2010. Uh, it did um, promote a survival advantage in this patient population. We studied in a very good randomized phase three study, but the uptake of the vaccine has been less than optimal. <clears throat> and really, we haven't had any further successes in this area since 2010. So you, you mentioned a, um, a dendritic cell. What is a dendritic cell? Dendritic cell is a professional antigen-presenting cell. It's a cell in the body that's relatively rare. Uh-huh. It's widely dispersed in the body, and it takes up or recognizes these foreign antigens like these viruses and bacteria, as well as small fragments or bits of the tumor cells, and presents them to the T cells that are typically resting. Okay. These naive T cells that are <clears throat> dispersed throughout our body but they haven't been educated yet. They haven't been turned on. It's really the job of these dendritic cells to capture the tumor fragments yeah. and present them to the immune system or these naive T cells. And this is how you jumpstart the immune system to recognize the so, cancer. So a dendritic cell uh, is uh, is infused or injected into a patient. And, and so tell me what happens at that point. With uh, and Provide me with a tumor example. Yeah, so one of the so the approach that we've taken is we've actually taken blood cells from patients through a process or a procedure called an apheresis, mm-hmm. 
which is a standard way to collect blood from a person, take it back to a specialized, we call GMP laboratory, <clears throat> a special manufacturing laboratory, and grow the cells for seven days and mature the cells and then feed them small pieces of the tumor, then infuse them back to the patient through a simple IV. Right. It takes 15 minutes. There's no side effects. The patients get up and go home, uh-huh. and it's very well tolerated. There are no side effects from this. And it, this is really what turns on the immune system. Okay. And and <clears throat> so those dendritic cells, those are they're not autologous. They're, they are. They are autologous mm-hmm. cells. They're from their own patient. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so so the stuff you're working on in in um, at Penn, are, are you doing the manufacturing of the of yes. these? You are. We have outstanding manufacturing capabilities uh-huh. at the cancer center, so we're, I think, really at the forefront of manufacturing these cell products. Dendritic cells. Yes, sir. Yeah. Dendritic cells, T cells, um, mesenchymal type of cells. It's a whole new type of therapy. Mesenchymal mesenchymal thymus, that's a <laughs> kinds of cells. What are those? Uh, connective tissue cells that yep. could be used in regenerative medicine. Um, as, ah. as, as we've implied here today, the notion of cell therapy goes way beyond cancer once we sure. once we get uh, our handle on it and and you know we are all in debt for um, vision from Penn Medicine uh, 15 years ago to establish a high pharmaceutical grade cell manufacturing facility which is as Jerry indicated really best in class we are now teaching the pharmaceutical companies how to make cells and we have it as a resource to continue to push the envelope. What types of cells we're we going to make? And this has become a um, you know a specialized uh, skill of the region. You know, some people have called Philadelphia now in this area Silicon Valley to indicate <laughs> the industrial and the um, you know the the business opportunity uh, because of this new uh, type of therapy. Yeah. And so, one can make in general, um, these therapies from the patient's own immune systems by easy access and manufacturing. And, and such I, I, so I, I'm, I'm thinking you guys are almost an incubator in, in a weird way for... Um, in, incubator I, both literally and figuratively, yeah. actually, because yeah, that's how these cells grow. <laughs> a business incubator, I'm right. referring to, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but, and, uh, but, but, but you're, you're teaching, again, you said you're teaching these pharmaceutical, and so are, are pharmaceutical companies per se the ones that are really focusing in on this, or are there other types of companies that say, hey, this is a good idea? Well, I think all range. You know, the, yeah. the initial uh, FDA approval uh, went to Novartis, a big pharmaceutical company. Sure. And, and uh, now the next uh, FDA approval was from a biotech company, mm-hmm. a smaller. Um, there are um, both big and small firms in, in, in involved. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's no doubt expensive. It takes a specialized skill. It takes uh, dedication to bring this type of therapy forward. It's really, it's really never been done before. And, you know, there's an opportunity here for the business communities and for pharmaceutical and biotechs to contribute innovation here because... As an example. The manufacturing has to become faster and cheaper. Yep. And we, and we know, you know, if we can do that in computing, we can do that in cell manufacturing. And, and the cost should come down. And, but that's going to take, take an engineering innovation and, and uh, cell biological innovation that goes beyond mm-hmm. immunology per se. We... We applied quite a bit of that in our own facility when we first figured out how to best grow these cells, and um, it's only the it's only the beginning, and it it represents the way forward. I think when we look at the price tag right now and think where we're going to go how, as these become more and more useful and um, and indicated, how will we make them cheaper? So let's talk a little bit about, <coughs> unfortunately, the price tag of this stuff. And, and, and I know it's relatively expensive right now because we're still kind of in the uh, nascent phase of this. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, Catherine Wu was talking, and I, I pulled an article from her, and she said that, you know, to develop these cancer vaccines will probably cost, from a cost standpoint, about $60,000, okay? And then, you know, there's going to be necessarily some markup um, if it's a business proposition. You know, you're looking at probably the low hundreds, Two hundred thousand dollars just for the therapy itself, and then and then you're looking at other therapeutics on top of that. So to to cure a patient, you know, from from with some of these uh, cancers, you know, it can it can easily you know reach a half a million dollars. So, so the question is, I mean, we're you guys are fast moving on this stuff, and and um, and I don't know if you're working on the fringes of some of the cancers, or you, are you working? It sounds like you're working on some of the main cancers. Okay. You guys find cures for this, and, and, and all of a sudden you've got these half, 
half a million right. dollar yeah. price tags. What does that? Well, I mean, I, I, what do you guys? How do you think about that? Well, I yeah. think wouldn't we love to have that problem? You just said we're going to cure all the public health hazards in cancer, prostate yeah. cancer, lung cancer. I mean, let's you know, let's do that. Yeah, sure. How will we afford the cost? I'm not trivializing that question. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, I think, change this um, or, or think through this. Is it a cost equation or is it a value equation? So what the current CAR T-cell therapies are able to accomplish for more than 70% of the little children who have this type of leukemia is curative, mm-hmm. we think. Mm-hmm. You know, we put hand on heart that that's true, and we'll see how they are in 50 years. But right now the results are absolutely breathtaking. It is worth every penny, mm-hmm. of course. Sure. And we want to make this available to any parent, any child. Um, and so we're working very carefully with the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. At the same time, your point is well taken. What happens if we get this right and this is really the therapy for cancer? And none of us in this room doubt that in time will be the case. We will have to figure out how to make this therapy better, cheaper, faster so that it's affordable for an entire health system across this country and the world. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I would welcome that problem. You know, it's funny. You, know, you think of this from a business proposition standpoint. I'm just thinking about this in my mind. You mean the R&D is so far ahead. Your R&D is so far ahead of what the manufacturing capabilities are for some of this stuff. And the other, the other part of the business proposition, and, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize, trivialize this from a curative standpoint, the other part of the, manu, uh, of the business proposition has to catch up with you guys mm-hmm. in some form or another. There's got to be some kind of a, a disruptive innovation that, that occurs on the manufacturing side to get this to a point where this is affordable I think for for many different people, and I I don't know what the, I don't know what that is. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on 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 that and and what what we can do to um, make this? I'm not necessarily less exp- well, yeah, less exp- less expensive. Well, I think I think John. there are a couple things. I mean, I I think the the first thing is that if we're treating patients earlier in disease, yeah. We have a higher success rate with less therapies. You know, we may not need Got it. Yeah. the uh-huh. Rolls-Royce option when, you know, the simpler version of the therapy may work very effectively. And right. so that's a, that's a challenge on a couple levels, but mm-hmm. it's a challenge that we can address. Mm-hmm. Earlier diagnosis, moving these mm-hmm. therapies from treating patients that have failed for other therapies to, to frontline mm-hmm. when they first get diagnosed. So that will help. Um, interestingly, that will also change the cost equation quite a bit. Because remember, these therapies may cost $500,000, but the alternative of treating with chemotherapy one after the other... Probably and, costs you know, as much or more. Yeah, yeah. 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 so there's, there's you know, yeah. the, the net cost, which is different than the gross cost. But I think the other thing that's interesting here that, that uh, we touched on a little bit, but this new concept has sprung up uh, a whole new subculture of the pharmaceutical industry. So it's not just that you have companies working on manufacturing CAR T cells. Uh-huh. You have whole families of companies now that are that are sprung up to think about the manufacturing details, to think about how might what, might you uh, genetically engineer those cells, and what are the approaches to do that. So there's a whole suite of industry being developed that, in total, should move this forward on many levels to be more efficient, more cost effective, and be able to be used earlier in, in disease. Yeah. So uh, I'm Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We're talking today about cancer vaccines, and I have three of the nation's experts on this: uh, Dr. Robert Vonderheide, director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania; Jerry Lynette, uh, medical director of the Sean Parker Institute of Cancer Immunotherapy at Penn's Abramson Cancer Center, and John Wary, director of the Institute of Immunology at Penn. So I, I had a guest uh, on. I don't know, four months ago, uh, Jim Wilson, who was uh, uh, in, in, in gene, uh, works in gene therapy, uh, he, he has kind of looked at this whole kind of business proposition, and he came up with, a, and I thought it was really interesting, and, and, and probably it might be rightly so based on what you guys are telling me, is that really the clinical and the R&D should be occurring for this stuff at academic medical centers. You guys have the expertise per se, and it shouldn't reside, say, in a pharmaceutical company. However, the manufacturing sounds like that's their bailiwick, a a pharmaceutical company being able to figure out, I mean, they make, you know, how to make a pill, and, you know, they must be able to, uh, they should be able to figure out how to make, you know, uh, these types of uh, of vaccines uh, in a way that's affordable. And that's almost what you're kind of saying is there is a... uh, 
uh, a new business that's kind of propping up here or starting up that relates to, well, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And if you go back to when bone marrow transplantation was first um, realized as a therapy for certain cancers, this was this was entirely done within academic institutions and in, mm-hmm. in the back of labs in ways that we would never do it uh, today. But, of course, as that adv- advanced and it was recognized the power, which, by the way, is a cell-based therapy, um, an industry grew up around it. Mm-hmm. And there was great innovation. Um, we used to give bone marrow. Now we typically give um, cells isolated from the blood, mm-hmm. uh, eliminating an entire operation that was needed. And how the cells were grown and purified um, became a, a collaboration with industry um, around great manufacturing innovation that now has made this a, a, a very standard um, therapy. Okay. And, and I think we'll see something similar. You're absolutely right, pharmaceutical Companies understand manufacturing, mm-hmm. and and we want to partner with them to make this um, and it, better. And it sounds like you guys are in, in a very meaningful way. I mean, you've got. It sounds like you probably have some pharmaceutical companies kind of knocking on the door saying, "Hey, we want to get in here." Well, <laughs> in some yes, form or another. <laughs> you know, I think the uh, the first <clears throat> FDA approval was a collaboration between um, uh, Penn Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Novartis. Yeah, yeah. And it all three played uh, absolutely major and critical roles, and and, and here we are. Uh, not that much later with an FDA-approved product that's helping uh, children. Got it. All right, so let, I want to talk a little bit about uh, preventive cancer vaccines and, and, and a patient who would come in uh, who may not have a cancer yet, and, and you, and, and you, I guess the workup would decide, hey, this patient has this particular gene or has this particular mutation, and we know that we know we probably should give that patient a uh, you know, a, a cancer right. vaccine. Help me understand well, how, how how that would work. I mean, it is. Are is my it, eyes lighting up again because is, this is, is, is what da- you <laughs> referred to? Is is there danger in? I mean, help, help me understand well, what the pluses and minuses are of of that. So yeah. the perspective that I have on that is, you know, the the immune revolution has been about these uh, T cells and about the about what the immune system can accomplish. But the last immune revolution was vaccines around preventing childhood diseases, yeah, pathogens that cause disease. Mm-hmm. So are we at the point now where we have learned sufficient information about how the immune system attacks cancer to move from therapy, which Mm -hmm. we've been talking about, which, by the way, is extremely expensive, Mm -hmm. to prevention, which is notoriously much cheaper? Yeah. And I think we're there, and we've begun to put together the prototype. Another aspect that has enabled this, I think— Can can I I ask you, can you give me a type of cancer where you think this is probably— Right. Um, so promising. So yeah. I think that we we are able to very carefully and precisely estimate the risk of cancer for certain individuals who carry um, a mutation, mm-hmm. an inherited mutation. I'll give you an example: BRCA1, BRCA2. This, of course, is um, a pathway in genes that we study very intently at Penn through the Basser Center for BRCA, mm-hmm. based here at Penn, and individuals who are healthy but who nevertheless have those mutations that they've inherited from their mother or their father um, have an 80% lifetime risk of breast cancer if they're a woman or 30% chance of ovarian cancer, also pancreas cancer. Now we're learning maybe melanoma, prostate cancer, esophageal cancer. So could we vaccinate those individuals in a way that generates a robust immune response to prevent cancer from happening or at least reset the clock? So if some tissue is trying to become cancer, get rid of those small cells. And do you think back. it's easier to do that than with from a therapeutic standpoint? It sounds like the cancer microenvironment is probably pretty challenging. And before well, you can create that, uh, before it has that environment, mm-hmm. uh, um, John, Jerry, want to weigh in on this? Well, that's, okay. the, that's <laughs> the inherent advantage is that there is no complex tumor microenvironment. These yeah. are very small foci, yeah. very small numbers of presumed cancerous cells. So we're at a distinct advantage in terms of mobilizing the immune system and eradicating the disease. I, did you find this um, more promising than, than the therapeutic side of it? I mean, it, it's, it sounds like this is, this is something where, you know, uh, if this could really happen, uh, you know, it sounds like it would obviously cost less and it would be much better off for the patient because they wouldn't have to go through the, you know, the, the, ther- the therapy itself. I mean, what, any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we, we know very clearly that it's easier to prevent T cells from getting exhausted than it is to reverse that process. Uh-huh. The challenge is, can we create the vaccine that does this the right way? Can we find the targets that are appropriate? Can we induce the right kinds of T cells to be able to prevent development? If we can do that, the T cell biology is much simpler it to is. prevent 
dysfunction, then reverse dysfunction. Okay. So this gets to sort of a, a, a big picture general question about how we can understand, you know, when is the immune system doing what it's supposed to do in a person to maintain overall health? How can we maintain a healthy immune system and teach the immune system to prevent the development of cancer or to be able to respond to therapies when we introduce them? So it'd be better to prevent than to, to and, reverse. And so how, how would how would you know when to give a uh, a preventive vaccine? At what point would you give a preventive vaccine to a a patient? Well, we're 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 debating that right now because yeah. the first prototype of a of a true prevention vaccine is nearly completed. The first clinical studies. This was um, a, a DNA based vaccine uh, where we uh, vaccinated uh, about a hundred individuals who had been diagnosed with cancer, uh, surgically uh, treated, given whatever treatment we can, and yet we're worried about their relapse. So this was a prototype vaccine to try to prevent relapse. The results were very promising, recently presented at a national meeting. And so now we're designing exactly and addressing exactly your question. We have a, a, a therapy. It generates an immune response. It was safe. Now how do we vaccinate healthy individuals? And I think the answer depends on risk. Mm -hmm. So if an individual is healthy, yet we know they're at high risk for cancer, that is the type of individual where it is appropriate to think well, what, about these what, what, what age? I mean, let's assume, I want to say a 10-year-old uh, female uh, who has this, uh, who has the, the BRCA gene. Yeah, so, so that's too early because um, um, uh, disease, uh, cancers in that spectrum don't arise until later in life. Okay, so what age? So, uh, you know, the I would say, um, depending on the target, we're talking about vaccinating, most likely vaccinating individuals um, after they have completed having their children. Got it. Okay. And so yeah. we make that decision all the time. Those individuals yeah. say, okay, I've had my children. I'm going to have both of my ovaries removed to prevent um, yeah. uh, a risk of cancer. So that would right. be the opportunity. We're talking women in that age or, or, or men in that age. I think we would, in the, in the first um, renditions, want to be past um, the childbearing years. Got it. Okay. Uh, and we have that advantage because cancer tends to be, uh -huh. once you're past the early childhood cancers, cancer tends to be a disease of aging. Yeah. And what we're trying to prevent is ovarian breast pancreas cancer when people are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Okay. So I, I, we, got, we got about 45 seconds. I want to give Jerry and, 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 and John a, a just a, a final thoughts on where we're headed here. Uh, Jerry, what, 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 what are you most excited about here? Well, I, th I think we're in the, <clears throat> in the midst of a changing paradigm in terms of drug development uh -huh. away from monotherapies and towards combination therapies. And how we do that is really going to determine our success in the next decade. Got it. And John? Yeah, I'll, I'll just finish by saying this goes way beyond cancer. We're learning how the immune system works and how to use the immune system as a drug. Uh. And once we do that, we will be able to treat lots more than just cancer using wow. these kinds of therapies. Wow. So you've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. Uh, this program will be replayed several times over the next week and will be available on demand. Uh, the replay dates are likely to be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. I'm Jeff Voigt. You've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We've been talking today about uh, cancer vaccines with three of the nation's experts, Jerry Lynette, Bob Vanderheide and Tom uh, John Wery, uh, and uh, I want to thank you for listening in. I also want to thank our producer John Drew and Dana Cash, who is currently out on maternity leave. Any questions or comments? Please email us at businessradio at siriusxm.com. Have a great day. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.